you got a Bible, turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 and 24 is where we're at today. We've been working our way systematically through this book together, taking a look at what God has to say to us about assurance, about knowing that we know God. And so as we look at 1 John again this morning, we find ourselves in chapter 3, verses 19 to 24. If you don't have a copy of it in front of you, you can follow the screen behind me as we read together. John says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now, for these last few months, we've been looking at this issue of assurance, and 1 John is filled with all kinds of signposts for us that are intended to give us evidence to lead us to a place of knowing that we know God, being persuaded and convinced that we know Him rightly, that we know Him truly. And we see that, we've said this before, it has a twofold effect in our lives. For some of us, at times in our lives, it can comfort us by confirming our identity as children of God. Whenever we see these things showing up in our lives presently or showing up in our lives in the past or we're desiring and hungering for more of these things in our lives in the future. So they can confirm our identity as children of God, but on the flip side at times, they can cause conflict in our souls and cause us to question whether or not we are children of God when we see the lack of these things in our lives. When we see the absence of certain of these signposts and these evidences in our lives in the past, present, or even hungering for them in the future. See, First John's filled with all kinds of statements where John gives us evidence. Let me give you a few of them that we've seen already. In 2.3 he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 2.4, Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 2, 5 to 6, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 2, 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 3, 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 3, 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And 3, 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? see it over and over again, by this, whoever, if, all these conditional statements, all, this ev- all these evidential statements that John gives, right? And he says, if there's a lack of these things, he says, then you're, you, you, maybe you're blind or a murderer, right? Or a liar. Some pretty s- stark language that he uses as he kind of tends to draw a line down the middle and say it's black or white, and so here's a question for us this morning. Is we've, we're about halfway through this book. I know it's taken me a while, but we're about halfway through. 
We're going to put it on pause, hit Advent, and then come back to it after the first of the year. But, but, but as we kind of, kind of come halfway through here in 3, 19 to 24, the question for us is this. What happens whenever we see a lack of these, some of these things in our lives? What happens whenever we fail? Because I don't know about you. Anybody fail? Anybody would, would be honest enough to say, yeah, look, I blow it sometimes in some of these areas. There are times in which I don't walk in the teachings of Jesus. There are times in which my heart is, I do sense within it, this, this, this pri- the priorities and values are out of order. They're disordered. I love the things of this world too much and the things of God too little, right? I find bitterness rising up within my heart at times toward those who have wounded me in the past. And I find hatred simmering below the surface. It comes out of nowhere sometimes and just overwhelms me in certain moments, Right? At times I find myself being greedy rather than being generous with the world's goods and possessions that God has blessed me with to be a blessing. What happens when we fail? Listen, when we fail, when we fall short, here's what happens, John says. He says, our conscience condemns us. Our conscience condemns us. In verses 19 and 20, John envisions a time in all of our lives when our hearts will rise up And they will condemn us for doing what we ought not have done or failing to do what we ought to have done, right? They will condemn us for our sins of commission, the things that God has said, these are out of bounds and yet we stepped across the boundary anyway. And they will condemn us for the sins of omission, the things that God says walk in these things and we fail to walk in them. The things that we should have done and didn't do and the things that we shouldn't have done but we did do. Our conscience will rise up and condemn us for those things. When John uses the word heart in these verses, most scholars believe he's referring to our conscience. And you know what a conscience is? Our conscience is like a governor. I can remember as a child, my parents, for one of our, one Christmas, we walked outside of our home, my family, uh, we, they still live on the same one acre piece of land that I grew up on in South Lake Charles, Louisiana. And before that area developed, it was just full of fields and forests. It was a little blacktop, two-lane street that ran in front of my parents' house. Uh, and there, there was just all kinds of land. We knew all the neighbors who were around us. So they bought us this go-kart one year for Christmas. And so we got on the go-kart. We'd ride through the fields. We'd ride up and down the street because there wasn't a ton of traffic cutting through there. We'd ride in neighbors' backyards. And so when it rained, there was just... Like you knew where we had been, right? Because there, there, were, there, were, there were ruts left everywhere behind us. But on that go-kart, there was a governor on the engine. You know what that governor on the engine did? It restricted the speed of that go-kart. You know why? One of the reasons, it's one of the reasons I'm still standing in front of you today, right? It's for our safety, right? So that things didn't get out of control, that we didn't lose control of this vehicle that we were trying to operate as fast as we could because that's just kind of how I was, right? I, I, I didn't have a whole lot of sense to me. I still don't, most people would say, my wife particularly, right? But I didn't have a whole lot of sense. And so it was for our safety that they restricted the speed of that go-kart engine. And that is the conscience in your life. God gave it to you for a reason and for a purpose. It's like a governor, and whenever it, it, it's to keep things from running out of control in our lives, from us falling off of a cliff, right? It rises up at times and it, it, we, we feel uneasy about doing certain things. Why? Because our conscience is governing our behavior. It's governing our conduct. It's functioning as God intended it to function. But when we violate our conscience, 
And we can violate our conscience, can't we? We can go against the, that, that conviction that we sense inside, that kind of check that we have in our spirit. We can go against that. And when we go against that, when we violate our conscience, either in a handful of big things or in a host of small things, our hearts will rise up to charge and accuse and prosecute and condemn us. That's the ex- common experience of all of us. Every person in this room. And this may happen, listen, it may happen because of sinful conduct in your life. It may happen because of sinful conduct. Maybe you look at your past and you see some just terrible conduct. Maybe a, 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 just a, a line of brokenness there from addictions or from abuse. Maybe you raised your hand against someone. Right? Maybe, maybe you were, 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 were arrested and incarcerated because of a crime that you committed. Maybe it was because of adultery or embezzlement. Maybe because there's an outright rebellion in your heart against God. And there's some sinful, terrible conduct in your past. And your conscience at times still kind of eats at you about those things. And the deceiver knows that and so he hijacks it at times to try and pile on top of you in accusation. For some of us it's sinful conduct. But for some of us, listen, it might just be a sensitive conscience. One that is really, really tender. Look, yesterday, my brother and his wife, uh, they live in Oklahoma City. They took the train down from Oklahoma City to Fort Worth, Texas. Okay, and so they landed in Fort Worth on the train Friday night. They were coming to celebrate my nephew's birthday. And so as a part of the birthday weekend, they invited us to drive over and have lunch with them in the stockyards. And so we got in our vehicle, and after an hour and a half of driving, because 30 was shut down for some unknown reason between Arlington and Fort Worth, right, we arrived at the stockyards. When we got there, like 45 minutes late for lunch, my kids were going nuts in the back seat. Um, my st- I'm getting a little hangry, you know what I'm talking about? And so we pull up to the restaurant, and, and my wife's like, just drop us here and then go find a place to park. And I'm like, yes, yes, ma'am. So pull up to the restaurant. She opens the door. The kids get out of the minivan. They pile into the restaurant, and I, I kind of drive past the end of the building, and I notice there's a small strip of parking that belongs to the restaurant. And so I, I notice in that small strip of parking that belongs to the restaurant, there's one parking place left. I'm like, the providence of God is smiling upon me in this very moment. And so I pull into the parking lot and I kind of whip into that parking place and I get out, lock the doors, go into the restaurant and we catch up with our family. We eat, share a meal together, right? We sing happy birthday to my nephew. He gets his gift. And then when we walk out, they're like, hey, let's go check out a few things in the stockyards. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's fine. And so they wanted to drop some of their bags that they had from shopping in the stockyards in our, va- in our vehicle because they didn't have one with them. So we went back to our vehicle, opened the back gate, put the bags in, closed the back gate, then I saw the sign. And the sign said, right, this, these spaces are reserved for those, the customers of such restaurant while they are dining. All others will be towed at the owner's expense. Now in that moment, I realized that we were no longer dining in the restaurant. However, the closest parking was only about 100 yards away. It was 10 bucks. Right, 10 bucks to go park, to walk around the stockyards for an hour in the middle of the afternoon. Surely nobody's going to need this parking place at a restaurant in the middle of the afternoon. And so I just walk away from the van. Now, but when I walk away from the van, the whole time my conscience is kind of gnawing at me a little bit, right? You usurper. <laughs> Right, it's kind of letting me have it. But to be honest, what I was more worried about was coming back and finding the vehicle not there and having to go to the impound yard and pay 400 bucks to get it out. That's what I was more worried about. Now listen, how many of you 
are rule keepers? Show of hands. Yeah? How many of you are rule breakers? Right? And some of you are just lying, all right, because you're not raising your hand. You're one of the two, right? Our rule keepers usually have a very sensitive and tender conscience. And, 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 and so every, any sign that's posted anywhere, they're like, Man, I've got to yield to that. Our rule breakers are thinking, come on, man, take the context into consideration. Like, we can maybe bend this a little bit and kind of just keep, we'll keep going, right? We've got some sensitive consciences and sometimes some seared consciences, right? Right, but that's the reality. Some of us have such a sensitive conscience that anything, in any kind of ordinance, any kind of rule, that we're just, we're gladly yielding to that because we don't want to violate our conscience. And listen, that's a good thing, not to violate your conscience. You're going to need that thing eventually. Right, because it's going to keep you from going off a cliff if you continue to push it past its boundaries. Right? But listen, there are times in our lives, there are times in our lives, Martin Luther said it this way, he said, sometimes the devil inter- interprets the best things badly and the bad things well. He weakens the good things and makes much, much of things that are bad. From a little laughter, he can make eternal damnation. So there are times in which the devil indeed does tempt us into sin, but there's also times in which he hijacks our conscience and makes even the good things that we've done seem bad, so we're beating ourselves up over them incessantly. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. See, for some of us it's sinful conduct. For some of us it's just a sensitive conscience that rises up to condemn us. And this happens to all of us at times, doesn't it? See, for some of us in the room, for some of us here, right, for some people it happens, it happens, right, uh, for some people it happens some of the time, for some people it happens all of the time. Because the way our internal makeup is. And that's not enough. In verse 20, listen to what John says. He says, God knows everything. So our conscience is rising up to condemn us whenever we fail to meet God's standards, and yet God knows every thought. He knows every action. He knows every decision. He knows every motivation for every decision and action. He knows every inclination of the heart, every disposition of the will, every desire and every deed. He knows everything. There is nothing that is hidden from his sight. In fact, in the Psalms, the, the, the psalmist speaks of, he says this, where can you go to flee from God's presence? There is no rock that you can hide under, no cave that you can hide out in. You can go to the depths of the ocean or rise to the peaks of the mountains, and God is there, and he sees all, and he knows all. He knows everything. And so here's the question, if you know every failure, and God knows every failure, then that seems to be only more ammunition for a condemning conscience. And what we need, church, listen, for some of us, let me just pause here, for some of, some people, right, though that, that, convic- that, that kind of condemnation of conscience is something that we need to pay attention to because for some, it may be that God is using that to once finally even though you may have been in church and very religious all your life, to finally peel back the deception of sin in your life and to begin to show you your need for a Savior. For some of us, that condemning conscience 
is something that we should listen to. For others, it's something we should talk to. Because for some of us, what we need is what my son needed a few weeks ago. This is the first year that he's ever played organized baseball. Right? This fall. We told him, son, you've got to find something active to do. I don't care what it is. We can run a, a fun run together. We can do a 5K together. We can train for that. Kind of be out, they play outside almost every day, but we want to find something active that you can kind of invest your time in and, and, and give, give it a shot. So he said, baseball is going to be it. It's a slow-paced sport. He loves slow-paced stuff, and so he's going to play baseball. I played baseball growing up. I was like, I want to work with you. Let's get after it, okay? So going into the season, he'd never taken a nat bat before in a game. He'd never fielded a fly ball in a game, a ground ball in a game, thrown a ball in a game. And after the first couple of games, he was kind of struggling at the plate, right? He was, a, like most kids are his age who never played well, they were afraid of getting hit, right? Because it stings. And so every time the ball would pitch, he'd kind of bail back, even if it was right down the middle. And so I kept kind of coaching him, stand in there, right? It's not, if it hits you, you're going to have a bruise and you're going to be okay tomorrow, I promise. They're not throwing 97, <laughs> Okay. I kept trying to coach him up. And so finally he got the confidence to stand in there and start swinging. And in, a, in one game he struck out uh, in his two at-bats. And after the game, as we were walking back to the truck, we're walking shoulder to shoulder, we're just kind of talking, and he's talking about the game. And he's enjoying it. He's asking me, can I play again, Dad? Next spring, I want to play again. Like, all right, we'll play it again. But on the way back to the truck that day, he looks up at me with eyes that seem to be full of concern. And he says, did I do good? And listen, I, I almost have to choke back emotion here. But in that moment, I had to swallow the lump in my throat. Because there's, there's a sense in which he was asking, are you, are you still pleased with me? Like, you, you, you were good at baseball. I, I don't think that I am. Am I still your son? These things that you did well that I'm failing at. Am I still, you still love me? Are you still pleased with me? Does your favor still rest on me? And listen, there are times in all of our lives as children of God. See, for some of us, we need to listen to that conscience. For some of us, we need to talk to it. Because we, have to reassure, we need to be reassured. In the same way that my son needed to be reassured that my love was still for him, even in his failure, even in his inability that I was still pleased with him. He was still my child. My, my, my disposition toward him was one where my face was still turned toward him and not my back. He didn't have to perform on the field to earn my acceptance. He still got dinner when he came home. He still has clothes to wear. He still has a loving mom and dad who want to wrap their arms around him and show him the love of God. Right? That's, that's our disposition toward him regardless of his performance. And every child at times needs that reassurance in their life. You're still for me. You're still with me. Even in my failure and as children of God, even in my sin. So listen, where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning is this. Talking about where we get that reassurance and what difference it makes. That was my introduction. So here's, here's, the, here's the content of the sermon. Right? Where do we get that reassurance and what difference does it make? John says the place that we get it 
It's twofold. I want to show you in this text. There's more, but just two things in this text. One is that you have to look to the witness of the Spirit. You have to look to the witness of the Holy Spirit. In verse 24, John says that the way that we know God abides in us is by the Spirit whom He has given us. The Holy Spirit, right, if, if you're new to Christianity or if maybe you're just new, to this, new, new, new with us in this study, this, the Spirit has been alluded to several times so far in some language, but this is the first explicit reference to the Spirit in 1 John, in his writing. Right? And the Holy Spirit, listen, is the third person of the triune God. He's not a force like in Star Wars, right? right where, where it awakens after many years of dormancy, because there's a new Jedi on the horizon and they're going to rise up and overthrow the, the First Order or whatever they are called now, right? <laughs> the Empire. It's not a force, some impersonal force that you tap into, but the Holy Spirit is a person that you relate to as a person. He's a person. So we can, in the Scriptures, we can yield to the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. The Holy Spirit responds like a person responds to us. And we have relationship to him. Listen, the Holy Spirit was not a created being or thing following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, but he was a given person following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Right? So in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was with his people. In the New Testament, the Spirit of God is in his people. Right? And so you see this in the Bible, that the Spirit is the third person of the triune God. And as the Spirit bears, the, as, as such, the Spirit will bear witness to our adoption as children of God. He will bear witness. And whenever we're struggling to be reassured of our identity as children of God, because we have failed, our conscience is rising up to condemn us, and our hearts are piling on, that an evil one is using that to accuse us, hijacking that. You have to look to the witness of the Spirit, and the witness of the Spirit is at least twofold. Listen, there is an internal, an inward impression and an outer expression. Both. There's an inward impression and an outward expression. The inward impression is this the Holy Spirit convicts, He persuades, and He comforts. So this is his, what he, his work, what He does. First of all, He convicts. The internal conviction of the Spirit when you sin is a witness that the Spirit is abiding in you. That he's there. Listen, whenever there is no sense of conviction or sense of guilt or a check in your spirit about something that you've done that comes up to the surface and you can just kind of continue to walk in disobedience and rebellion against God, then that is, a, that is evidence. There's no check at all there. It's evidence that the spirit's not there, but whenever the conviction shows up, that's a good sign. It's a good sign when you feel bad about sin that you've committed. Are you with me? That's a good thing. One commentator said it this way. He said, sometimes I doubt, sometimes I disobey, sometimes hate comes seemingly out of nowhere, and these things bother me. And then he asked the question, that's bad, right? And he says, no, that is good. Those who do not know Christ know none of these questions. Such issues do not bother those with hard hearts because, but they trouble the Christian at times because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's an inward impression upon our hearts that sin is sin and righteousness is righteousness and we're to walk in one and away from the other. So he convicts, but also there's an inward impression of the Spirit by which he persuades. 
He persuades us in those moments when God, when our hearts are rising up to condemn us that God is greater than our hearts. See, he's arguing a case. And he's persuading you and aiming to persuade you that God is more merciful to you than you're willing to be towards yourself. He's more loving towards you than you are for yourself. He's wanting to show you indeed that you are a child of God. He's trying to persuade your heart that what God says is true about you, if you're his child, regardless of how you feel about yourself in a given moment. And the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to show you what's true about you, regardless of how you feel about yourself. So he might go back to something like 1 John 3, 1, when he says, see what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That we are his children. That this amazing love, this love that's foreign to us, this love that's condescended and come down to us to rescue us and save us. See that kind of love the Holy Spirit The Spirit of God takes the Word of God to persuade your heart that what God says is true about you. And that what God says is true is greater than what your heart rises up to condemn you with. Because He's more powerful. He's more merciful. It's not that He's more lenient. Listen, don't don't hear that. In fact, God is more stringent than your own conscience. But He's more merciful at the same time. So you have the inner persuasion, but you also have the internal comfort of the Holy Spirit when you're suffering. Whenever you're going through affliction, when you're walking through trial, when you're going through hardship, you have the inward comfort of the Spirit in the midst of your suffering. He's reminding you these things are temporal. There is something that is eternal. Hold on. Persevere. So you have the inner impression. Now how do, you, how do you keep that inner impression, how do you keep from self-deception in that? Because there's also an outward expression of it. There is an outward expression. The Holy Spirit not only convicts, persuades, and comforts us, He changes us. The Spirit changes us. He begins to change what we think. He begins to change what we love. He begins to change how we live. Right? So our head, our heart, and our hands. Right? The longer that we walk with God and we submit to Him, we begin to think differently than we used to think. Right? Our minds, as we saturate it with the truth of God's Word, as we sit under teaching of God's Word, as we read it for ourselves, as we study it, as we meditate on it, as we memorize it, the Spirit uses that to wash us and to cleanse us. It, like we, the, the renew classes, we begin to renew our minds with the truth of who God is, who we are, who we are in Him, what it looks like to walk with Him. We begin to think differently than we did before. We begin to love differently. We begin to value things differently than we did before. Right? You, begin to, you begin to find values rising in your heart that you know you didn't muster up yourself but were planted within you as the Holy Spirit just keeps unpacking bags. Right? Those of you who have moved recently, you know, you got a lot of stuff to unpack. And the Spirit does as well. When He settles into your life, He starts unpacking things and He changes what you think and He changes what you love. So that you begin to love the things that you used to hate and you begin to despise the things that you used to love. 
progressively over time. And he changes as well how you live. Right? There's certain things that you just don't do anymore. And certain things that you never would have thought of doing that you now are engaged in. Right? He changes us. There's an outer expression. Right? Let me try and break it down for you this way. Listen, in, in nearly, I think, I'm, I'm talking as, a, as if I've been a cop. I've never been a cop. I'm not a cop. But I, I've seen cop shows on TV. Uh, nearly every police department on the, in our nation has a room somewhere within that building. It's called an evidence lockup. Right? Whenever they're doing, when they're, whenever they're looking for um, evidence for, to solve a particular case and detectives are compiling evidence and they put them in files and wherever they store all those things, maybe it's all electronic now, I don't know, pictures, but I'm sure they got physical evidence to test for DNA, all those kinds of things. I've just seen like too many episodes of CSI and Criminal Minds and all those kinds of things, but, um, but there's an evidence lockup. Right? And so you've got cases that have been solved, cases that are unsolved, that are still pending, they're still going to trial, all those kinds of things. So you've got evidence compiled in that room. For all of these, you pull out the boxes or the files and you can look through to see the evidence for this, this, this case or this case or this case. Listen, where the Spirit has moved in, where He's taken up residence and begun to abide, there's going to be an evidence lockup. There's going to be an evidence room in your life of things that you can look back on and see. These outward expressions of the inward impression of the Spirit is working. That He's convicting, that He's persuading, that He's comforting. And it begins to show itself in your life. And so whenever your conscience rises up to condemn you because you failed do you look back on this spirit-wrought testimony and witness of all this evidence that God has been working in your life? And you begin to talk to your conscience. So, that's the first thing. Okay, look to the witness of the spirit. The second one. Hey man, we're running out of time quick. We've got to go. second one is this. You've got to entrust all that you are to all that Jesus is. All that you are to all that Jesus is. See, the other, one of the other commands John mentions in verse 23 is this. He says, you to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, the name in the ancient world stood for what a person was, what a person did, their identity, their, their reputation, right? Even, even today, we, we might say your reputation precedes you whenever somebody's name is mentioned. All of a sudden, you think about all that you've heard about them, all that you've seen in them, all the things that they've said, all the things that they've done, right? That's the name. Oftentimes, it's just associated with identity and authority. And John says... One of the commands of God is not only to love your brother like we saw last week, but also to believe upon the name of his son, Jesus Christ. To trust, to entrust yourself to all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. That's what it means to believe upon his name. Right, to place your faith, to place your trust in who he is, all that he is, the divine son, the incarnate deity, the messianic savior, the eternal God, the human substitute, right, the, the risen savior, the returning king, that we place all of our trust and trust all of ourselves to all of him, to all of him, right, to rely on him. 
right? That, that, his, that he's, this has this unique relationship to God. And so through him, we're able to have a relationship with the Father as well. And you know what? That's another work of the Spirit. As the Spirit enables us See, listen, so many of us, this is what we want to do. We want to come to God with our hands full. Say, God, look at everything that I've done. You should accept me. But it's the Spirit, whenever He opens our eyes to the death and destruction and deception of sin, that enables us to come to God with our hands empty and say, God, I have nothing to offer. Only to the cross I cling to entrust all that we are to all that he is for us. Right? And so whenever your conscience rises up to condemn you, you talk to your conscience. Look back at the evidence room. Say, there is one who took my punishment, so I'm not going to punish myself. I'm going to walk in the freedom and victory of Christ, knowing the grace of God, tasting the love of God, through him by entrusting all that I am to all that he is. And listen, I wanted to get to this, so I kind of cut that point short. So, what difference does that make? Listen, and this is so important because some of us are like, and we talk about theology all day long, right, all these assurances that John's trying to, what difference does it make? Let me tell you what difference it makes. See, sandwiched in between by this in verse 19 and by this in verse 24 is these words in verses 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. I want you to see something, church, that the depth of of your assurance will determine the degree and depth of your prayer life. Did you, did you hear? Confidence in prayer hinges upon believing that I am his beloved child and that he is ready to receive me with open arms. If, I don't, if I'm not persuaded that I'm his beloved child, that I won't have confidence to go before the throne of grace and bring my petitions before him. Large petitions, big petitions. I won't pray big prayers. And I won't, even, I won't pray small prayers about daily mundane things. Those things are too trivial for God's concern. And the big things, I'm not sure that he really wants to answer me because of all these things that I've done in my past. Is, is anybody with me? Right? Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, childlike confidence makes us pray as none else can. It makes a man pray for great things which he never would have asked for had he not learned this confidence. And it makes him pray for little things which a great many are afraid to ask for because they have not yet felt toward God the confidence of children. Listen, my kids come to me day and night incessantly with requests. Maybe I'm by myself in that. I don't know. But they come over and over and over and over with requests. 
with a childlike confidence that because I'm their daddy, that I will respond. Now, I do, I do always respond, just not always the way they want. But they come with confidence to ask. As I was trying to think of how to illustrate this to you, and I, I came across this image, image of JFK. You might remember him, he was one of the presidents, former presidents of our nation, was assassinated here in Dallas. And JFK is seated in the Oval Office, right, a place of history, a place of power and authority. And he's seated behind a desk which has all kinds of stature associated with it, right? Documents have come across that desk, confidential documents, released documents. Reporters have sat in that office and interviewed the president. Newscasts have been shot in that office. He's there behind the desk this piece of nostalgia and, 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 and significance in our nation's history. He was at the time, if not the, one of the most influential men on the face of the earth. And yet under his desk is his son. Just playing there. There's so, there's, in fact, if you do a Google search for this image, you're going to find all kinds of images of his kids there in the Oval Office. They are approaching him, coming to him. Why? Because they have access to him. They have asked, why? Because he's their dad. He's their father. They don't see him merely as the president of the United States. They see him as daddy. And so they're playing under his desk. Now listen, it would be really awkward if there were some foreign dignitary under his desk. Right? Some other president of another nation, prime minister, some cabinet official, right? Some dictator, right? It'd be really awkward if you walked in and there's a full-grown person there kind of peeking out the door. But there's this child, his son. And the son has access there because he's a child of the father. Do you believe, church? Do you believe that this great God, not one of the most influential and powerful persons in the world, but the, he not only governs a nation, but governs the entire created order as the great and glorious king, and that if you are his child, you get to play under his desk. You get access, unprecedented access to him. And that whatever you ask, you will receive. Now listen, this is not a name it, claim it, blab it, grab it kind of promise. Right? Because there are, like, when my kids come to me and say, Dad, can we read the Bible? Yes, we can read the Bible. Why? Because it's my will. It's part of my will. I want them to read the Bible. I say, Dad, can, can you pray for me? Yes, I will pray for you. Let's pray right now. Let's get, let's get after it. What do we need to pray for? Yes, I will. Dad, can I shoot off a bottle rocket in the house? No. You cannot shoot off a bottle rocket in the house. That is not a part of my will, right? In fact, John says, later on in John, 1 John 5, he says, whatever we ask of him according to his will, we shall receive. So it's not a name it, claim it, blab it, grab it kind of thing. But as we walk with God, as the Holy Spirit, remember he's changing us. So the things that we're asking for from God begin to change as well. That we want his will to be manifest in our life. We want to grow in Christ's likeness. We want to think thoughts that are differently. We want our minds to dwell, as if Paul says, on things that are true and honorable and excellent and praiseworthy. 
We want our hearts to be captivated by God's mission in the world. We want to be engaged. God, would you make it so? Yes. Right? We want our lives to look differently and matter for the kingdom causes that are around us. God, would you enable me to engage? Yes. Confidence in prayer is rooted in an understanding of who you are as the child, beloved child of God. Do you have confidence to pray? That's the difference it makes. Some of you today, you need to, you need to, maybe you need to listen to your conscience as it's rising up to condemn you, but some of you, you need to talk to it. You need to go back to the evidence room of the Spirit and say, all this Spirit wrought graces in my life that I see, all this evidence. And then throw your life, all of your life for the rest of your life and trust it all to Him, all to, the, all, to all that Jesus is on your behalf. And then step boldly into the Oval Office where God is seated on His throne ruling over the world. And because of the sonship of Christ and your faith in Him, you're now sons and daughters and you can come with access. You can do it personally and you can do it corporately. I'll close with this. I was so blessed just in our prayer time in our life group this last week as we went around and shared just what God was, was doing, where we were, we prayed for each other. We prayed for each other. And there were some folks who had just confidence to lean in because they knew they were accepted by God. And so we're going to ask some big things of Him. Would you stay our anxiety? Would you heal us of our depression? Would you heal us from wounds that have been festering in our past, from traumatic experiences? That we go before God asking big, big things that we might be whole and healthy and walk in the fullness of who we are as God's children to be used by Him for His glory and the good of the world. See, this is not just a personal prayer time that we get to have with God now, but it gets to manifest itself with one another. And if you're not experiencing that right now, I want you to know something. You are missing Is your conscience condemning you today? Maybe you need to listen to it. Maybe you need to talk to it. And pray right now that God would give you the sermon to know which. Let's pray. Father, today we thank you for your word. How it clearly speaks to us. Reminds us of our need for you, of our dependence upon you. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and for myself this morning that if our conscience is now rising up to condemn us, you will give us discernment to know whether or not we need to listen to it as, it, as work may be conflicted about whether or not we are your son or daughter. That your spirit may be for the first time peeling the scales off of our eyes to see the nastiness of sin and the beauty of Christ. And if so, may we flee to him entrusting all that we are to all that he is as Savior and Lord. 
But Father, for those who are your children, if their conscience is rising up to condemn them, may they talk to their conscience this morning. May they preach to their conscience, preach to their own hearts as they pull files out of the evidence room and are reminded of the Spirit's work up to this point and juncture in their life. And Father, may that produce within us a confidence and prayer before you to know that we are your beloved sons and daughters. We get to go under the desk because we have unfettered access to you. So we would pray big things. Father, that we would be a people who cry out to you to do things that are beyond what we could ask or imagine. And that we would pray small things because we know that as a father that you're intimately concerned with the realities of our lives. May we have confidence I ask it in Jesus' name.